Thank you very much, Keith and Maureen, for praying uh, for us and also uh, reading scripture passage, uh, the scripture passage for us. Uh, we have been making our way through uh, this prophecy of Habakkuk over the last number of weeks together. And what we've really been watching and witnessing is Habakkuk's emotional and spiritual journey through a very, very difficult time in his life. We've seen that uh, Habakkuk's uh, experience was that uh, his country was in shambles. He, uh, he saw that everything seemed to be falling apart all around him. All the things that, that he thought were certain and sure were no longer certain and sure, and he didn't know what to do about that. And of course, it was, it was largely due to, it was Judah's own fault in the sense that they were practicing violence and injustice and idolatry and, and things were an absolute disaster. And Habakkuk, as a prophet of God, he's looking around and he sees this happening all around him and he goes to God in anger and in confusion and he just kind of dumps on God. Why is this happening? And why are you letting this happen? And why are you silent? And how long do I have to wait before I get an answer from you? And of course, this is, a, this is actually a, a common frustration for anyone who's suffering. When you're experiencing suffering, particularly very serious, very hard, very intense suffering, you, 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 it's, almost like, uh, it's almost like you're a spring that's being pressed and pressed and pressed and, and compressed to the point where you just kind of explode. And you cry out, God, where are you? What's going on? Do you even care about my situation? And that's what Habakkuk does. And we saw that God responds to Habakkuk and he says to him, look, I care. I care very, very much, but you need to understand something. You think it's bad now? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet because the Babylonians are coming. I have raised them up to uh, be my instrument of chastisement, my instrument of punishment against my people who have been disobedient to me. And of course, this utterly shocks Habakkuk, but it also, it also chastens him, at least to a degree, because he, he does come to realize that, you know, God is God. He is not God. He needs to get off the throne and let God be God, and he needs to trust that God knows what he's doing, even if he doesn't. And so he's chastened a little bit, but... It doesn't stop him from complaining because he goes back to God and he says, look, you're holy, you're just, you're righteous, you're good, and you're letting this horribly, horribly wicked nation uh, come in, sweep in, and conquer us who are a less wicked nation. We're evil, but you're letting more, the more evil be used by you to, to punish the less evil, and I just don't get it. And, and he has a, this kind of outburst all over again. And God says, and, and he kind of says like, how, are you going to let him get away with it? And God says to Habakkuk, he says, who says I'm, I'm letting them get away with it? Oh no, I will be judging the Babylonians. Don't you worry. In fact, I am the judge of all people. Nobody ultimately gets away with anything. And when the Babylonians do receive their comeuppance, when they do receive the just rewards for their ruthlessness, you will stand in awe of me. So that's where we've been so far. And now we're moving to chapter 3. And notice, notice that 
Habakkuk prays again. But notice the difference between this prayer in chapter 3 and the prayer that he prays in chapter 1, the two prayers he prays in chapter 1. There, it's emotional outbursts. It's just sort of uh, automatic, visceral lashing out from his gut. But here, it's not like that. First of all, this prayer in chapter 3 is a song. You know, that, that weird word in verse 1, Shigianoth. Uh, that word uh, was a, a, uh, a musical term, or it could have referred to a musical instrument. We're not entirely sure. But, but because it's a, a song, um, it demonstrates that Habakkuk is not having an outburst here. He's actually being very thoughtful uh, you don't see it in the NIV version, but it is there, and you'll see it in, in other versions of this passage. Twice, you see the word selah. Now, that's a, a musical term in Hebrew as well. We're not entirely sure what it means, but we think it means pause. We think it means rest in order to reflect. So, before, Habakkuk had this kind of tantrum, and God answered that tantrum, and now we see that that Habakkuk is, is collecting his thoughts. He's reflecting on God's uh, answer to his, uh, his prayers. And now he responds. But this time he doesn't accuse. He doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. No, he worships. He praises God. Now, how in the world is that possible? How does he make this shift? I mean, his circumstances haven't changed. He's still living in a failed state. They're still going to be conquered by the uh, Babylonians. God hasn't changed his mind about that. Everything is bad all around him, and in fact, it's just going to get worse. So his circumstances haven't changed at all, but he has changed. He's moving from this position of fear to this position of faith. He's moving from, from anguish all the way to Adoration. He's moving from gloom to gladness. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like that? I mean, we, we're facing a very different future uh, than what we thought we were facing three months ago. I mean, the fallout from this whole pandemic is going to be absolutely staggering. Everything's going to change. Everything. Almost everything, it'll seem like, is going to change. Everything from how we care for people uh, to how we play sports, how we travel, to how we shop, how we eat out. It's going to be a very, very different world than what we came from. And it can create a great deal of anxiety and fear in us to, to imagine this new world order that is so unknown to us. Habakkuk somehow turns a corner in the midst of a similar situation where, where changes are coming and they're going to be absolutely drastic. He turns this corner from fear to faith. How does that happen? Well, we're going to look at this, uh, look at this prayer together and we're going to see that he does two things. He, he reorients himself and he remembers. He reorients himself and he remembers. Now, does one happen before the other? Like, does he reorient first and then remember? Does he remember first and then reorient? You know, frankly, I, I wrestled with this all week, and, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure that one precedes the other. It might be kind of like these things are happening at the same time, 
and that they, they sort of feed off one another. We're going to look at them separately, but I, I don't want you to get the impression that you must do one before you can do the other. They're sort of like two sides of the same coin. And the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at how Habakkuk reorients himself. In other words, Habakkuk takes his mind off himself and he puts his mind on God. Look at verse 2. It says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, that last phrase is particularly interesting. In wrath, remember mercy. See, up until this point, Habakkuk has been looking at the world from a purely kind of horizontal perspective. He's been looking at himself and Judah, and he's been looking at Babylon, and he's kind of been comparing the levels of evil between the two. And he's, saying to, he's been saying to God, look, why, why are you punishing us with them? I mean, I know we're not perfect, I know that we have done many things wrong. We have disobeyed you. We have broken covenant with you, Lord. But come on, we're, we're in comparison to them. We're pretty okay, frankly. But in reorienting himself, he starts to see things from God's perspective. He starts to think about the holiness of God and the justice of God up against the backdrop, not of, you know, really bad Babylonians and not so bad uh, uh, Judah, no, up against the backdrop of a completely sinful world. And he realizes, wait a minute, we all deserve judgment. Nobody deserves a pass here simply because we're not so bad, not quite as bad. Against God's absolute purity, nobody can stand. And so he, all he can do is he can plead with God. He says, please, in your wrath, remember mercy. You have every right to judge us, God. You have every right to leave us in misery, but please, please remember mercy. There's a really important lesson here, friends. If, if you say to God, look, God, I know I'm not perfect, but come on, I'm better than Bob or Sally. You know, at least I'm a Christian. You know, at least, I'm, at least I believe in you. Uh, uh, on Sunday, I gave $5 in the collection pay, plate. I, I, I've been a pretty good participant in, in the life of the church or something like that. And therefore, you should hear me because I'm not so bad as they are. You know what's going to happen? You are going to be completely and constantly frustrated. Because you're working with a paradigm Remember we talked about this before, that there's, there's this operating system going on underneath the, the application. The operating system, the paradigm that you're working with is this. God owes you. God owes you. You're not so bad. You're trying your best. You're doing what you can. And so you ask him for things. And would you please stop this pandemic? Would you please take care of my family? Would you please make sure my business doesn't go south? Would you please keep my job? Would you please make sure I can make my mortgage payments? Whatever. And then when you don't get what you want, when you don't get what you want, you feel let down. Because you've thought underneath it all that, that you've got this bargain kind of relationship with God. It's almost like you're equals. You would never say that. 
You would never admit that. But it's how you're operating. Look, we have a nice relationship here. You tell me what I ought to do. I do my best to do it. And then I ask you to help me out. And you, uh, you do that for me. And that's how things are supposed to work. But, but when God doesn't give you what you want, you feel like he's not kept his end of the bargain. He's let you down. And you become angry and you become bitter. And eventually you say, I'm done with this. I'm out. He's not coming through for me. Why should I bother with him anymore? There are a lot of people walking around in this world with precisely that story. God didn't give them what they wanted, and so they're out. Because they've not been reoriented, you see. They still really operate with themselves at the center of the solar system, not the sun. Notice what Habakkuk says. He says, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. Repeat what? Your deeds in our time. Make them known. In other words, he's saying, Lord, you have an agenda. You have accomplished that agenda, that plan in the past, and we're asking you to accomplish your agenda now as well. He's no longer seeking his agenda. He's seeking God's agenda. Before, he might have asked God to to change his mind about the Babylonian invasion. Can we do it differently? Can you change the, the plan? But now, he's asking God to work through it. If this is what you're going to do, Father, do what you've done in the past. Make your glory known. It's back to chapter 2, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, we're all in this crisis. We're all in this pandemic. We're all in this mess, and our world is turned upside down, and we're all praying Even non-Christians are praying. Why not, right? You don't know what else to do. So you're praying and I'm praying. We're all praying and we're saying, God, save our church. God, save my job. Save my business. Save my family. Save my, my life. Revive our work. That word that, that's translated repeat in uh, the NIV, it's probably better translated in revive, as revive, as in, as in bring back to life, restore, vivi- uh, uh, not vivify, um, even purify or correct. We ask God to, to restore our work, to revive our work. James Boyce, a, a great preacher from the 20th century, he put it this way. He says, It's like building a little castle of dominoes. So long as the structure goes up unhindered, we seldom think of God. We don't really need him. But suddenly, something jars the table a bit and the dominoes tumble. Now we become alert to prayer. We say, oh God, renew the work. The structure is tumbling. But our interest is really on what we're building and not on what God may desire. We need to learn that God may not be interested in our little piles of dominoes. We need to come to the point where we say, renew your deeds, revive your work. See, that's what reorientation does. It 
it leads us to see what's most important. What's most important is not my little kingdom. It's his grand one. It's not my glory. It's his. So that's the first thing he does. He reorients, but he also remembers. He also remembers, you know, verses 3 through 15 is an expression of that remembrance. What Habakkuk does is, is he goes back to the seminal event in Israel's history. He goes back to the Exodus. And he recalls the events of that Exodus where God rescued his people from the wicked Egyptians. And it's almost described like a, like a Marvel comic movie, you know? Like even things like uh, in verse 4, rays flashed from his hand. It makes me, I got to admit, it makes me picture Thor in Ragnarok or whatever it is, one of the Avengers movies, and, and he's lightning is blasting out of his, his, uh, his hammer. Pestilence and plague. It talks about pestilence behind him and plague before him. Uh, That's a reference to the plagues, the the means that God used to free his people from uh, Egypt. The ground shaking, that's a reference to Sinai. He tramples on the sea. It's a reference to the the Red Sea. And what Habakkuk does is is he rehearses this story. In other words, what he's doing is, is he's going back to the gospel, the seminal gospel event as he understood it. Because you see, Israel was in slavery. They were in bondage. And they had absolutely no power to free themselves. They couldn't get out of that. They were under the thumb of the Egyptians and they were just stuck there. And God intervened in history. He actually entered into the events of their lives and he acted to save them. And it was God who did it. Not them. They just sat back and watched They just sat back and observed. They just sat back and basked in God, wielding his sovereign power to to free them. That's the gospel. God doing what you can't do. And Habakkuk reminded himself of that. So what he does is, is he connects what he knows about God and what God did from the past. He connects that with his present situation. He remembers. Think about that word, remember. If you cut off your arm, or your hand, sorry, if you cut off your hand, what do you do when you sew it back on? You are remembering it. You're reconnecting it to yourself. One of the things you and I have to do, friends, is we have to read the Bible's story as our story. When you read about the Exodus, when you read about how God freed his people from slavery, you can't just read that about what God did for them, people way back then. You need to see that as God doing something for us. We are the spiritual ancestors of of the Jews and of the Israelites. And so when God freed those people back in the Exodus, he was freeing our people. This is our story. Habakkuk is what you could call an Old Testament saint. You and I. If you love Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a New Testament saint. And so the story of God rescuing his people in Egypt is the story of your people. It is God working in history for you, even though it happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Look at verse 13. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. 
Habakkuk is remembering this fact. Despite all their failures, despite all their shortcomings, despite the fact that over and over and over again, God's people turned their back on their God, even after the Exodus. Despite all of that, they were still his people. They were his people. And because they were his people, he was never, ever going to completely abandon them. He was never, ever going to completely let them go. They were far too precious to him. Now, at the risk of stroking your ego, know that that's you. If you are a Christian, and by that, I mean if you have given yourself to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, you are his people. You are God's possession. He chose you. You know how it says his anointed, to save your anointed. The anointed one was the king, the one that God specifically chose out of his people to work out his plan through him. And Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. We all know that Messiah basically, well, I shouldn't say we all know. Why should you necessarily know? Messiah means anointed. The New Testament word is Christ, which means anointed, which means chosen. But you are chosen as well. You you were picked by God. Before the very foundation of the world, God had set his affection on you, and he had said, you are precious to me, and therefore I will rescue you. Because you're my people. And all throughout the Bible, it's so fascinating to see that when you are God's chosen, you better not mess with them because God is going to come in and rescue them. Right here in Egypt, you see it. You don't mess with God's people because God comes and rescues them. In the story of Samson, you see it. In the story of Esther, you see it. In the story of David and Goliath, you see it. In the story of Daniel, you see it. Over and over and over and over again, you don't mess with them because they're God's. You know, it's, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, the, the, the big brother theme. Uh, it's actually a theme in movies and stuff like that. What I mean by that is I, I, was, uh, I didn't have a big brother, so this didn't happen to me. And uh, I didn't have to do this as a big brother. I was a big, I am a big brother, but when, we, when I was back in school, when I, my younger sister and I were in school together, I didn't have to do this because she was kind of cool and popular, so nobody messed with her. But, but you know, the, the, the old story on the, on the playground is uh, there's a kid and he's being teased by some bully, right? And they're picking on him and making fun of him, and then around the corner comes his big brother, And the big bully, the bully looks at the big brother, and the big brother is big and tough and, and intimidating. And the bully puts his hands up like this and scurries away in fear and terror because you don't mess with his little brother. Now, don't get a swelled head, okay? You're not precious to God because you are awesome. You're precious to him because he's awesome. This whole poem is all about God, who he is, and what he's done. The whole point of remembering that, rehearsing that, going over that, is to get your mind off of you and onto him. 
to be reoriented. Habakkuk, he looks back at the Exodus, right, to remember that God in his wrath remembered mercy. It was a seminal event of redemption in the history of God's people. And then he pleaded with God, do it again. But here's the thing, guys. When we look back, we don't have to look all the way back to the Exodus. And in fact, we don't have to plead, do it again, because when we look back, we look to the cross. You see, Habakkuk pleads with God, do it again, do it again. But we know it's done once for all. In wrath, remember mercy. You know, it's the the riddle of the Bible. How in the world can God be both just and merciful? How can he do that? God can't just wink at sin. God is supposed to be just. And so he can't just look at sin and go, "Eh, well, you know, hey, we all need do-overs once in a while. Forget about it. He can't do that. He wouldn't be just. If any judge on the earth had people coming to them and and the, the prosecution said they're guilty of doing this, this, and this, and this, and the evidence is absolutely incontrovertible, and the judge looks at it and goes, ah, you know, forget about it. We would want that judge disbarred, disrobed, booted off the bench because we would say, you're not just. Well, it's no different with God. But yet God wants to be merciful. He can't wink at sin and we sin, of course. In, in, in fact, we were actually enemies with God. In Colossians 1.21, that's what it says, that we were actually enemies with God, but at the same time, we're God's precious possession. He loves us, he delights in us, and he doesn't want to destroy us in our sin. And so what happened? Jesus stood in our place. Jesus, the perfectly righteous one. You know, in verse 16, it says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nations inviting us. Here is Habakkuk. And he knows that God is going to bring judgment, but it still terrifies him. So much that he feels like he's going to puke. Why? Because he didn't see the way you can see and I can see that that justice, when that calamity comes, it doesn't come on you and me. It comes on Jesus. And Jesus stood before it and he trembled too because when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed with God, would you let this cup pass from me? He was sweating drops of blood because God had peeled back to him the very depths of hell that he was going to face. But Jesus willingly, voluntarily went to that place for you and for me so that the justice of God and the righteousness of God and the mercy of God could be reconciled. So when we remember, when we are afraid and when we wonder, will God redeem? Will God take care of us? Will we make it through this? When this pandemic is over, will I still be here standing? Will I still have a life to live? Will will I be okay? We remember the cross. Where God's justice was poured out on his son, so that God's mercy would be poured out on us. And that reorients us. 
and that grants us peace and that enables us to face each and every day with renewed confidence, no matter the circumstances. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, enable us to remember, to remember, and to be reoriented as we submit ourselves to your perfect plan, Lord. May we remember that you did in your wrath remember mercy. And you reconciled your justice and your love on that cross so many centuries ago so that we need not stand before you in fear with legs trembling, with lips quivering, but rather we stand before you with confidence and hope, lost in wonder, love, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as the worship team makes its way back uh, into... uh, our studio. <laughs> um, I just want to remind you that at this time of, of the service, we would typically uh, go through the process of remembering in a, in a very tangible way through celebration of the Lord's Supper. As we eat and as we drink, uh, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And, and Jesus said that we should do this in remembrance of me, remembering what he did for us on the cross. And of course, these weeks we've been apart, uh, and we've been unable to, to do that, and we long for that. I, I, I know that many of you long to be able to do that together again soon, and so do I. Uh, but at this time, in order to make this, this meaningful, despite the fact that we are currently fasting from prayer, I just want to uh, take us through a prayer of, and, and a meditation, a, a meditative prayer, I guess, uh, as we reflect on the communion we're not participating in, but the meaning of it regardless, so that we can be reoriented by it. So please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're not able to participate in this meal together the way that you called us to in Scripture right now. But nevertheless, we ask that you would help us to remember the agony that Jesus endured before going to Calvary and on the cross. He knew beforehand that he would bear the sins of the world. How heavy that must have felt. We can only imagine how abandoned and forsaken he must have felt. None of us can really know what our precious Savior endured for us on that cross. The shame, the beating, the torture, the agony of being crucified for something he didn't do. And dying for us who were the ones that deserved this wrath. He grieved the sin that he bore so much that he even sweat drops of blood. How hard was it for our sinless Savior to bear our sins? What price, what glory, what passion. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this tremendous privilege. Great God, help us to keep sober minds and patient hearts as we wait to partake of the Lord's Supper. Understanding the suffering of the Savior's passion for this meal to even be possible. 
Let this sink deep into our minds and cause our hearts to realize just how great a price he paid for those of us who had no hope outside of Christ. And as we wait to partake again, comfort us with the knowledge that our dear Lord Jesus himself pledged that he will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when he drinks it new with us in his Father's kingdom. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Come, establish that kingdom that we might sit with you in person, face to face, and eat and drink to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.